Hello and welcome back to the Kill Your Gods podcast. My name is Jesse Dram, your host with the most who's uh, alive, not a ghost, at least for now. Uh, welcome as we dip into the sandy depths of Dune, Frank Herbert's Dune. Not not his brother Greg. Greg Herbert's Dune is quite bad and uh, full of very unpopular political beliefs. Guys, I'm sorry the podcast is a little bit late. Uh, I lost my job. Yeah, been a been a, a rough week here for the old Dram family. Uh, yeah, we, we, we had a meeting scheduled, a Zoom meeting scheduled. Oh, Zoom, how you have betrayed me. <laughs> we had a Zoom meeting scheduled mm, August 20th with the CEO. Nobody knew what it was about, and uh, turns out she fired like five or six of us all at once. Well, laid off, but uh, oh boy, not good. So as you can imagine, getting the old podcast up has been pretty low on my priority list. But here it is. I don't anticipate anything else taking any longer. Uh, my guest this week is Robin Parrish. You may remember her from my I Hate Infinite Jest episodes. She is a gem. Be sure to follow her at R.E. Parrish Comics. Uh, yeah, very entertaining stuff. Uh, Bromadeus, the retelling of Amadeus through uh, Frat Boys is pretty fantastic. She's She is hilarious, and I, I really hope you guys check out her work. Um you know any place that's hiring <laughs> a digital content manager. Uh, when it rains, it pours, and when it pours, it hails, and when it hails, it's uh, time to die, I guess. So, let's head out to it. You, you know what I could use? I could use a nice, sandy getaway. And, you know, I've always been more of a fan of the beach than the ocean, which is a lie. But, yeah, let's go... Let's go have fun. You know what would improve the beach? Less water, more carnivorous worms. That's what I think. So, uh, pages 0 to 98. First chunk. Book 1, episode A of Dune. Go check it out, guys. Bye. Almost forgot I got shows coming up. September 24th will be our monthly at Flying Fish Brewery in Summerdale, New Jersey. 28th will be at the Pennsport Beer Boutique. It's September 28th. Pennsport Beer Boutique in South Philadelphia along Moya Mensing. And on October the 21st, I will be at Good Hang. That's at Moonshine, which I believe is also on Moya Mensing in South Philly. That's a, that, that's a popular block in there. So come see me do comedy and keep me keep keep my will to live up for another month. Kill Your Gods podcast. We have wrapped up Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, and now we dive back into the world of a slightly harder, more in-depth Byzantine fiction, and I wanted to go back to one of our earliest and one of our best guests from all the way back on the I Hate Infinite Jest podcast. Robin Parrish joins us again today. How are you, Robin? I am great. Um, very excited to talk about Dune. Uh, as you know, I was barely restraining myself from talking about Dune during the Infinite Jest episode. So <laughs> that's right. You were always going to be one of the first guests for this because you, yes. you were. I think you were in like the first ten episodes of I Hate Infinite Jest, and even then, mm-hmm. you're just like, have you have you read Dune? Dune's really good. So <laughs> yeah, I was like just fresh off of reading Dune for the first time, so I was like very. Uh, it was it was in the sort of forefront of my mind at that time. It, it hasn't quite great because much like Infinite Jest, I have only read as much as like up to what we're going to discuss today, mm-hmm. and it's interesting. But man, uh, Frank Frank Herbert really just throws you in to sink or swim in the sand. Yeah, absolutely. What yeah. I like to say about Dune is like the reason I love it so much, and and I had such like mixed feelings when I first finished it. Because in a lot of ways, and uh, I hope I don't get killed by by Dune fans for this, the writing is is kind of bad. 
uh, <laughs> like the dialogue is not what I would call good exactly. Like um, the the world building, the the religion, the ecology, the science stuff, so cool, like unparalleled. Like I just fascinating and and deeply thought about, and like it makes the book so compelling. Uh, I like to say that Dune is like sort of like a Mobius strip where like one side is like good and the other side is bad. And it it's both at the same time. <laughs> the same thing with it, like the politics, like, you know, Dune is both woke and unwoke. It is like a Mobius strip <laughs> of that, like, which you'll, you'll see more as you read the book. The gender politics are fascinating. Okay. Yeah. I can tell there's a weird thing happening with women here. I mean, essentially mm-hmm. already making them kind of like, you know, if, if they have any self-determination, they're kind of witchy Benny Garrison, mm-hmm. which, by the way, I am going to be mispronouncing everything, <laughs> and it's okay. uh, you guys can just kind of deal with that. Yes. Yeah, no, uh, the the Benny Gesserit, which, sorry to, to correct you, the Benny Gesserit. That, that's, like, that's fine. Just don't, just don't expect me to say it that way. Yeah, no, all the feet, like, the thing is, I love Jessica as a character. She is like super compelling, I think. Um, And in that way, for me, she succeeds as a female character. There is, of course, all the like weird Oedipal stuff that you'll see with her and Paul. Mm. And some like in the sequels, especially some of the stuff she like thinks is, is I think questionable uh, in terms. Anyway, you'll see, you'll see. Um, But I think she's a super fascinating, interesting, like 3D character. Um, yeah, I'm, 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 I like I'm, her. I'm, I'm liking her so far. Um, mm-hmm. Speaking of so far, I went a little bit too far. Uh, let us know anything you have to promote anywhere we can find you. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, R E Parish Comics. Uh, R E P A R R I S H C O M I C S. Uh, that's my handle on pretty much every website. And uh, yeah, I just I do comics. I've, I've done a Frank Herbert comic before uh, about this exact thing that I'm talking about. So I'll, I'll, I can send that to you after the show. Uh, yeah, go check it out. R.E. Parish Comics because they're all great. I want to see more <laughs> Brahmadeus. Oh, yeah, it's coming. Uh, I'm finishing nice. it this month. So yeah, awesome. finally. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's dip right into the summary uh same rules as always anytime you have anything to say about anything just tell me to shut my stupid face and we'll do that awesome all right starting off starting off with quotes a duke's son must know about poisons here's a new one for you the gum jabber kills only animals all right uh dune begins on the planet caladan which is ruled by duke leto of the house atreides this house is one of the families that rule over the planets and planetary systems of the universe. Duke Leto's son, Paul, is in bed when his mother, Jessica, and Reverend Mother Mahayam check in on him. The old Reverend Mother mutters that Paul may be the Kwisatz Haderach. Again, don't care how that's actually pronounced. <laughs> the I one mean, not, who... not, too, not too far off, so you're good. Perfect. Uh, the one who will bring about important changes in the universe. The Reverend says the next day, Paul will meet her gum jabber, an instrument that poisons and kills instantly unless he passes her test. To test whether Paul is human, the Reverend Mother has him put his hand into a small box, which brings great pain to Paul. But he knows that if he moves, the Reverend Mother will stab him with the gum jabber. She keeps it like at his neck the entire time, right? And by the way, this summary is doing a better, it doesn't say any of that. It just says there's the gum jabber and the quisets had a rack and like with no explanation. You just you you kind of intuit like space space Jesus always mm-hmm. space Jesus exactly ha- yeah <laughs> having just read Harry Potter and just like it literally the same plot just like by the way you're magic Jesus although I guess I guess Paul is in a slightly more elevated place than you know living under a cupboard in uh, evil fat people's houses I had not realized in Harry Potter how evil all fat people were. Yeah, that that is true. Actually, I've not read that since I was a kid. But you're not you're not totally wrong. Maybe Hagrid might be an exception. But Hagrid is husky. He's he's, he's husky. That's he's, true. He's big on all sides. Yes. Uh, he passes Mahayim's test, which means he is a human being and not an animal. He then discovers that Jessica took the same test long ago, and that the Reverend Mother was her teacher at the Benegarisit school. So yeah, we we re- Paul's actually getting like a little indignant because he's like, you know, this lady's being kind of a bitch to my mom, 
but uh, the mom is very deferential and pretty much like she was my teacher. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, space eugenics, space nuns. You love to see it. Yeah, it's <laughs> basically what they are. Wait, where is where do the eugenics come in? Oh, you'll see. Don't worry. I'll see. Okay, you will. Okay. <laughs> basically, the the sort of difference between the the animal and the human being kind of plays into that, where they're making sure he's a sort of elevated life form i guess mm. okay 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 uh well they leave one of the things being left out of the summary is the fact that uh it's not the uh you know oh you failed the test oh well back of the line anakin you have to stay on tatooine no it's if you fail the test you're dying that's that's yep. how we know <laughs> yep it is a test you Pre- definitely want to study for. yeah pretty ruthless <laughs> yeah um, the two women reveal to Paul that something terrible will soon happen to this house of Atreides and his father will die. The two women tell Paul that the Duke's death will happen soon after the Atreides move to Arrakis, the desert planet, mm-hmm. now ruled by the Atreides' mortal enemies, the Harkonnens. So, um, you talk about, are, are Harkonnens an entirely different alien species or are they like a house? All right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to drop some Dune lore onto you. Do it. They're... There are, and I'm like 99% sure of this, uh, in the Dune series, there are no aliens. No aliens. Um, All uh, advanced life forms that you sort of encounter, these sort of different like species, kind of doing scare quotes here, um, are different human evolutions, like different ways mm. that humans have have evolved and sort of specialized so the like uh the guild navigators that you'll see pretty soon it and have you seen the movie Did, like the david lynch movie i have not we're I, i've seen i've seen clips i know it's legend we're gonna do a whole episode on just that oh hell yeah yeah I, the, the, I, the entire <laughs> idea with the scheduling of this is we're doing this just as the new dune movie is coming out i was so gonna, gonna say the timing is great you're gonna get oh, yeah. you know lots of people interested i think but so uh, yeah we're, we're gonna do all of dune then we're gonna do an episode on the david lynch movie and then we're gonna do an episode on the new movie flawless yeah, yeah. so the guild navigator is sort of this iconic thing especially from the lynch movie with the big like squid in the tank and it, it's like this big psychic squid um that they like wheel in <laughs> at one point during the movie um but that is actually like a, a human sort of evolution branch as well so the harkonnens um are just i think pretty much regular people they're just a different like clan like a different royal family or like noble family i guess um since this is all sort of like i don't know uh this is sort of returned to a feudal kind of system so there's Mm -hmm. different like families that, that are all fighting each other Okay. You know, I, I'm actually realizing that part of the reason the, the names of the families are throwing me off and making me think aliens, aside from the space thing, mm-hmm. is weirdly enough, I'm just remembering now as, as a kid, I was a big fan of the Animorphs books. And, uh, yeah. uh, and I believe they had like the different races and it was like the Yerks and like the Horks or something. It was something weird. It was like Horser Bathar. Now that I think about it, it was probably deviated directly from this. Yeah. Yeah. But, Definitely. Uh, I mean, you, you already probably see the the amount that George Lucas ripped this off for Star Wars. Yes. Al- already, I can see that. I mean, even down to just a, a sand planet, which I don't mm-hmm. think. What? So here's the thing. I'm actually working with two different summaries here. And as a result, I actually screwed up and missed the publication history I wanted to get into first. But Oh, sure. Yeah. Whatever. I have never done books by the book. So that's fine. Uh, book was written by Frank Herbert, American. After a 1957 novel of his was published, he traveled to Florence, Oregon, and studied literal sand dunes, where uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture was trying and failing to stabilize moving dunes with grass planting. Mm -hmm. Um, Herbert wanted to tell the story of a messiah and believed that humanity was naturally inclined towards feudalism, as you just mentioned, the whole feudal structure. With uh, where some led and those left to follow orders preferred to give up control and be ruled. That does sound a little brutal, but I mean, oh God, I was literally just in a Facebook argument about this where somebody was talking about how uh, the pandemic has kind of ruined their opinion of humanity as a whole. Mm-hmm. 
And I do think we're kind of seeing that we're seeing like the little definition of like, this is why we humanity cannot have nice things. And, uh, right. you know, it is, so, it is sort of um, pessimistic about human nature, I guess the series a little bit. Um, and I think a, a mistake that a lot of people make, and I don't think I'm ruining the book by telling you this, um, people, a lot of people read this book and make the mistake of thinking of Paul as a good guy. Mm. like as part of this sort of um colonizer like noble family who comes in and he's he's, he's a spoiled little rich boy basically and and the whole religious element as you will see as it is revealed to you um is it's a much more cynical thing sort of than than just you know oh someone is the messiah it's it, it is intentionally sort of um, the Bene Gesserit are a very interesting group of people mm-hmm. and, and you'll see sort of Herbert's attitude toward religion as well as his attitude toward, I don't know, uh, charismatic leaders and, and sort of that he, he, he's, he's pretty anti that whole connection there, I guess, um, mm as you will see but yeah so so it's it's just very funny when you talk to like some people and it's usually people who've only read the first book um who mm. are like you know paul is you know a hero and mm. <laughs> i'm not sure that that's true <laughs> he, he gets more explicit about it in the in the sequels that that is actually not the case um okay but well i mean i do feel it's almost like it, it is kind of immature to think like every kind of prophecy is going to end in like, you know, not every chosen one is here to like exalt everyone and pull a Jesus and like, guess what? Everybody got you in heaven. Thumbs up. You're welcome. Right. Right. Like, right. It could just be like, no, the chosen one who was destined to rule over all of us. Uh, yeah. I, I, I think of my favorite horror movie of the last 10 years, Hereditary, where oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that movie so much. I'm, I, I've been wanting to watch it lately. I'm holding out for like a, a wet October night, especially oh, perfect. In, in the new neighborhood. But, yeah. Yeah. That movie, you know, it's a cabal of witches. Could be called a Bene Garrison. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, try, trying to bring, bring their favorite demon into uh, into mm-hmm. a proper vessel, and yeah, it would be weird to call that guy the hero of the movie. He's just you know, right, watching his family getting murdered until he becomes an appropriate demon, mm-hmm. which is the demon coming of age story. Um, yeah, <laughs> I guess that's true. <laughs> one thing I found interesting, and I never considered, but uh, Frank Herbert wanted to write a messiah type book. And he found that Messiah religions tended to arise from desert culture. Never thought of that. Really hard to argue when you think about it. I guess, yeah. Uh, he, he, that, that is interesting. I wonder if it has anything to do with it or if it is just because like, it is just sort of the Abrahamic religions all came from the one area. And yeah. a couple of them ha- happen to have these sort of messiah elements to them. Well, I mean, hey, even to think of, uh, you know, e- Egyptian, which, you know, same area, but precedes it by several thousand mm-hmm. years. Horus is not to, I don't go the full, there's, there's an atheist tact right now that Horus has the same exact story as Jesus. And that's mm. not true. Uh, yeah, but, I don't think so. Yeah, but it's very, it, Bill Maher made the point and fucking everybody's brought it up since then. But it, there is enough that it is still kind of messianic. Um, yeah. Ooh, huh. Another fun I'll have fact. to look into that. That's interesting. Yeah, it's it's weird to think how it, it makes sense that like different terrains would call for different things. Like I know for a fact that uh, they said that Christian missionaries early on when they first reached like Inuit people and Arctic mm-hmm. people had a real hard time selling them hell as a bad thing. Because, <laughs> you know, you're burning the fires of hell. Like, oh, that's sounds, sounds warm. Pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah. Where there'd be more food than blubber. Eh? <laughs> I know Indians, Indians did not have Canadian accents, but anything else would be flirting with racism. Uh, well, sure. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think there's also, um, this is totally unrelated, but the one of my favorite Christian missionary stories is is the sort of Christian missionaries who first went to Japan and they were like, you know, using learning Japanese and trying to, you know, speak with people in Japanese. And they used 
the Japanese word for God, which is like associated with like Shintoism. And so people were like, yeah, they're talking about the same thing, I think, right? They're, you know, using that word, I guess that's what they're talking about. And then they realized it was a totally different thing um, and, and sort of cooled on them. <laughs> oh, wow. H- have you seen uh, the movie Silence by Martin Scorsese? Yes. And the book is really good, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. That movie I think is- that's a little bit later once once they've sort of really started cracking down on the Christians, which honestly, I don't totally blame them. Oh, yeah. No, I don't blame them either. I just I love the take in that movie. If you haven't seen Silence, it's about uh, Portuguese missionaries in Japan when they're really cracking down on Christianity and one particular Jesuit priest's realization that like, oh, these Japanese Christians are dying and they do not even actually understand what any of the gospel is like mm. it, we, we have not. And, and due to cultural uh, confusions like that, you know, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, the, the author of that is uh, himself a uh, Catholic, Shusaku Endo. He's like a Catholic um, uh, Japanese guy. And the, the book is possibly even bleaker than the movie. Um, I need to read this. Highly book. recommend it. fucking movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, ooh, the novel was also greatly influenced by Herbert's recent experiences with psilocybin mushrooms. Oh, that totally makes sense. Yeah. I have I haven't done mushrooms yet. I have to at some point. I, I I'm I'm a very panic attacky anxiety person, and yeah. my my mother who is also the same way, but has definitely dabbled back in her day has straight up said like, "Don't do hallucinogens. You do not have the brain for it." Yeah, it's you know you're you're playing with fire with certain you know types of brains and and that sort of drug. But everybody, I, everybody I respect is tripped balls, and I just want to do that too. <laughs> yeah, no, I. There's this whole debate about, um, like, whether this upcoming movie is is true to the vision of Herbert. There's, you know, of course, talk of of the the scrap the initial Dune movie that was supposed to come out in like what, the seventies, I think, mm-hmm. the Jodorowsky uh, movie. Um, where he got like Mobius to do the, the sort of storyboards for it. And he got, you know, I don't know, uh, uh, maybe the costume designs, I forget what it is. And there's like a whole book of like proposed designs and storyboards and, you know, uh, visuals for the, the movie. And it, it is such a bummer to me personally. I, I am, I am team uh, Jodo here because uh, I think this, when I imagine Dune, I imagine this, it's sort of trippy and and colorful and uh so much of it is about like you know these these uh altered or like enhanced mental states Mm -hmm. um and I feel like any movie that you're sort of uh it, it is sort of disappointing to me to not take the opportunity to try to do something interesting visually with right. that stuff so well one of the arguments i've heard about why the david lynch version did not work as well is just the 80s were the wrong time in film to try to make this movie like, probably too, i like too much I of love... like the zeitgeist bled into it and affected it yeah. where it was always it, anything made in the 80s it does not matter what time period it's supposed to be taking place it still looks like the 80s luke skywalker has fucking feathered hair Mm-hmm. in empire and return of the jedi like there's a reason for right it. right 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 yeah i think there there's lots of um uh interesting stories about what what exactly happened with the lynch dune movie it was just sort of disaster after disaster i think mm-hmm. um i sort of get why they chose lynch like uh i don't think he's like the number one best choice i think you know after watching the holy mountain i totally get why you would want Jodorowsky to do it but um uh David Lynch you know he he's he is a very sort of woo-woo guy with like the Mm -hmm. transcendental meditation like I I get why you you'd maybe choose him especially with some of his uh stuff that he's come up with for like Twin Peaks the returns I think it would be cool you know and and there are a couple scenes in in the Dune movie that I think are great but I, I just feel like David Lynch for all his surrealism is very down to earth surrealism Right. No, he's he's definitely not like psychedelic. Yeah. That's not really his thing, but 
he's not the worst choice for the director mm. of Dune, I think. It's, it's always crazy how these big choices happen because, like, I actually think a very one-to-one comparison would probably be the choice of uh, Peter Jackson to direct Lord of the Rings. Peter Jackson, <laughs> when he was chosen for that, he had made one art house movie and three bonkers, gory horror movies, and they and, mm. and they and they picked him, and it total. Like there is nothing in those previous movies. One of those movies is called Meet the Feebles. It's it's a, entirely made of puppets. And yeah. Puppets are just like fucking and puking for an hour and a half. It's amazing. Wow. It, it does not make me think orcs and elves, but yeah. like, they pulled it off. Like I would say he actually had a much more like baser, not as impressive filmography than David Lynch already had at that point. Right. To be tasked with that huge thing. But yeah. All right. Anyway, let's get back into summary. Uh, on another planet, the fat Baron Harkonnen, again, fat people, mm-hmm. evil. Um, <laughs> like I'm saying, some of the politics of Dune do not hold up and some are good. I don't know. It's hard to say. No. Uh, reveals his plot to his nephew, Fade Rautha, where we're going to get a bunch of wacky names and again, Mm -hmm. sink or swim. And his servant, Peter, at a mentat, a person who thinks using logic and no emotions. The Baron has maneuvered the Emperor, the leader of the universe, into giving the planet Arrakis to the Atreides, again, that is Paul and Jessica and Duke Leto's family, in exchange for the planet Caladan. Although Arrakis is a desert planet and Caladan a lush one, this trade does not seem good for the Baron. Arrakis is rich in melange, a drug and spice that is an addiction for millions of people throughout the galaxy. The Baron has arranged this trade because he plans to kill Duke Leto and all his family once they are on Arrakis by using one of their own people to betray them. Peter trades barbs with his fat master. I don't know who wrote this summary, but they're mentioning (laughs) it. As Fade Rautha looks on passively. Mm. So, okay. So we're getting, we, we find out about the drug. I haven't gotten yet to it in the book. I'm very interested for a very like uh, in-depth description of how this drug actually works. What the yeah, kind of it's, effects are. It's awesome. It, I, I think it's one of the cool parts of the book is, is the whole thing with spice um, mm-hmm. and the reason why they super duper need it uh, for transportation. Oh, they need it for transportation. Yes, and it's only found on a desert planet that they're going to invade. Ow. Mm. <laughs> this was written in the 60s, so this was before that would have been probably a little too ham-fisted, uh, maybe, for Americans. Right. But <laughs> right. But, well, uh, there, there, there'd been a long history of, like, opium moving before, you know, mm-hmm. we started a goddamn war to handle it. But Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah not, no. not topical at all at the moment. I know, yeah. Like, I think a lot of this was was very um, ahead of its time, um, talking about uh, the the sort of Western powers going into these um, desert areas for um, resources that they desperately need to keep their you know infrastructure going kind of a thing so i've uh I, i've had a joke i've been doing on stage lately where i pretty much say uh i i i'm a big fan of history and a big fan of star wars enough that i kind of confuse the two as a matter of fact i <laughs> i confuse star wars and 9-11 all the time <laughs> and talk about like well luke skywalker's not a terrorist right i mean he was he was born in a desert and then Imperial forces killed his family and his home. Oh, uh, he, he ran and found an old bearded man in a cave who indoctrinated him into his warrior religion. Oh shit. Luke Skywalker's a terrorist. <laughs> no. And, and, and you will see um, as you go through Dune that a lot of that is, is from Dune. So. Um, nice. Okay. I always, I, any, any reason to slag on George Lucas, I am down for. So if I'm going to find more stuff that he, I was, I was just like uh sort of and and again i hope i don't get killed by star wars fans for this because you know i like star wars fine but um it's it's just very funny how much he took from dune and then the parts that he seemingly sort of hastily changed 
and I'm sure mm-hmm. I'll get corrected on this by Star Wars fans who know all the lore or whatever, but, you know, Dune is uh, millions of years or, you know, tens of thousands of years in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, humanity, tens of thousands of years in the future. No aliens, you know, mm-hmm. just humans as they are um, then versus uh, George Lucas making it a long, long time ago. But somehow there's humans there, I guess. Yeah, like, I never that never quite sat with me, right? I remember, like, as a child asking my dad, like, well, wait, if it's long ago, why are they humans? Why aren't they on Earth? And I'm pretty sure he said something to the like of, uh, don't ask matter. questions. It's stupid. <laughs> right. Who cares? It's all made up. Right, exactly. Which is, you know, valid. It's like a fun movie or whatever. But it sort of, it, it, it is in stark contrast to Dune where he, he did really think about all of the aspects of this and how it worked, you know, and, and this is probably the sort of ecologist side of him coming in mm-hmm. and actually wanting to explain all of it. So, oh, well, I mean, the fact I skipped over, but like one of the people uh, Herbert dedicates the book to is like ba- basically like water harvesting ecologists, like yeah, one, yeah, of, yeah. one of the dur- dorkiest dedications I have ever no, seen. No, yeah, I, I want to read it because it's, it's, it is very dorky, but I, I like it a lot. The Do dedication it. is to the people whose labors go beyond ideas into the realm of real materials to the dry land ecologists, wherever they may be, in whatever time they work, this effort at prediction is dedicated in humility and admiration. Like, I like that. Like, he, he talking about how, you know, they're doing probably the most important work. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, probably most people don't think about it, but I don't think yeah. he's totally wrong. Like, no, no, it's, it's definitely important. Not to mention, I mean, at the time he wrote this, this is when... Uh, I'm kind of fascinated with like what the ecological panic point is in like chronologically in history. Mm -hmm. And I think this is right around the time people are like, this pollution isn't great. Right. So there probably is a concern of like, you know, lack of water as future comes along where this is obviously a role that seems it's going to be very big in the future to come. Yeah. This is like around the same time as uh, one of my uh, very favorite science fiction writers Philip K. Dick released um, The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch, which is this sort of Gnostic sci-fi thing. Uh, And in this future that he sort of imagined, Earth has heated up to the point that, you know, you need to like speed up human evolution in order to get people to live on it. Or you send people to like forcibly send people to go colonize Mars because that's all you can do. So... Interesting. Oh, just because I don't know if it's going to come up again. Uh, Star Wars. My my cousin Frank, another I Hate Infinite Jest uh, guest, has a two-year-old son who they are both big Star Wars fans. I get mm-hmm. a random call from Frank two weeks ago. And when I answer, he just goes, oh, hi, Han Solo. Um, I was just telling Enzo how you and Chewbacca use the potty. And if he wants to go into Millennium Falcon <laughs> with you, Long story short, I've gotten like four of these calls now and I have to be Han Solo at the drop of a hat <laughs> and talk about how important I couldn't have made the Kessel run without using the potty like a big boy. <laughs> That's very funny. Uh, I, I've already decided when I see this kid in person, I'm just going to pretend I've never seen Star Wars. Just like completely. So I'm, I'm going to be his Santa Claus, only it's Han Solo on a toilet. Yeah, that's that's excellent. <laughs> All right. Back on the planet Caladan, the Reverend Mother Mahayam confronts Jessica and asks her why she did not have a girl in accordance with the Benegarisit's orders. So I'm guessing they can just kind of like pick the gender of their babies. That seems to be mm-hmm. the implication there. Yes. So the Bene Gesserit have these sort of uh, incredible mental powers, basically mm-hmm. extreme mind over matter where they can control each cell and molecule in their bodies mm-hmm. um, consciously. Okay. So and they, they use can that, they use that to achieve no boys allowed. Yeah, they can choose like you know which you know sperm fertilizes which egg. I guess uh, I I only skimmed this, so I, I think <laughs> that's that was the deal. And you'll okay. see more of this sort of mind power later in the book. Um, okay. But yeah, so they can they sort of 
control exactly what goes on in their own bodies. Wow, I'm trying to I'm trying to think what I would control. I, I guess I would make my back not hurt. And I would also <laughs> make my stupid ass fucking sleep eight hours like I attempted to do last night. Didn't you so this is this is me getting on my David Lynch woo-woo uh <laughs> shit here. But um I I got into meditation a while back and I've since you know not not been as good at, at it mm. at, at doing it, but um one time I was doing meditation and I was focusing because because I I slouch all the time so it makes you know slight backache like in the middle of my back um and I was someone told me to focus on on that muscle group and I focused on it um for like five minutes and then all of a sudden like every vertebra in that part of my back all like snapped at once it was very cool yeah it was very cool like I didn't move or anything. It just, it just all went at once. Cause I was focusing on it. So See, you can I have, do it. <laughs> I, I haven't looked into meditation as much as I would like, uh, much like psilocybin and LSD, everybody I know and respect really is into the transcendental meditation thing. And I mean, there's Works. a lot of insanely successful people who do that. So I mean, maybe it must work. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I need to, I need to go spend some money. And do that. If only to to do things like make your back hurt less. Which yeah, if, if I can yeah. do just that, money will yeah. spent. <laughs> yeah. All right. Jessica replies that she had a son because the Duke wanted a son, an heir, very badly. Reverend Mother chides her, saying that now there is no daughter to wed a Harkonnen, the rival house of the Atreides, and seal the breach. Jessica and the mother both know, oh, by the way, that finger thing I just did, I'm also in the process of reading brief interviews with hideous men. Oh, perfect. And, there, and there's that one thing where they say finger flexion all the time, and now right. I will never unthink that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Jessica and the Reverend Mother both know that the planet Arrakis is already lost and that the Duke is as good as dead. They talk to Paul, and he recites a dream he had in which he met a girl who calls him Usul. And he is well, basically he has prophetic dreams and uh, he knows he will meet this woman one day. Have you, have you ever had a, a prophetic dream or something you would have liked to have been prophetic? Uh, no, no prophetic dreams. Um, no, can't say I have maybe someday in the future if I meditate harder. Um, what about you? I'm trying to think. I feel like I had something i don't know my dreams are very uh strange this one wasn't prophetic i I just remember how weird it was i'm i'm sitting in a room and it's a room from the silent hill video game so it's already like spooky as shit and somebody comes in with like i'm like reading a book and somebody comes in with a nail and a hammer and they're trying to set the nail on the bridge of my nose to break my nose oh and i'm like swatting it away like like a fly, like, leave me alone. And then the person who's doing this is not angry at me. They're like, come on, I'm going to get in trouble if I don't break your nose. <laughs> They're just a, a cog. Yes. Oh, They're wait. just doing their job. Yes. Look, I'm just the nose breaker. Don't mm. get me in trouble. Uh, yeah. I, I actually did have a weirdly prophetic dream. When I was like six or seven, I had a dream that Alfred Hitchcock uh, threw a dart at my face. And I woke up and I was bleeding from my eyebrow. I think I had fallen off the bed and hit my head on a nightstand. Oh, so it was like your brain just like trying to make sense of, uh, gotcha. Yes. Let's get Alfred Hitchcock in here. Yeah. Spooky. (laughs) Also fat. So definitely evil. Yes. According to both JK Rowling (laughs) and Frank Herbert. (laughs) Later, Paul meets Thufir Hawat. Very like vaguely Arabic kind of names we're getting here? Yes. Uh, The Duke's main strategist in the training room. Hawat warns Paul of the dangers he will face on Arrakis, but he tries to dispel Paul's fears that his father will be killed. He also mentions the Freemen, uh, native inhabitants of Arrakis. Hawat explains that the Freemen are a tough, resilient people, and they will have to be dealt with in some way by the Atreides. After Hawat leaves, Gurney Halak, the Duke's war master, appears and challenges Paul to a training duel. Paul fights well, but Halak makes the battle difficult for him since he knows that Paul may actually have to fight someone soon. Mm-hmm. Finally, Paul meets with Dr. Yua, a doctor, Yui. Of the Atre- Yui, a doctor of the Atreides who gives him some information about the life forms of Arrakis. 
including the planet's sandworms. So the one scene I know I've seen and I remember very vividly in uh, David Lynch's Dune is this weird sparring section session they have and these like strange digital blocks. Yeah. <laughs> I, I find it sort of charming though, like very rudimentary CG that they use in that film for the, the shields. Yes, it, um, it, it, it is charming, but it looks like it, it, so it, it looks like um, Minecraft bad, or something. Yeah, yeah. It looks like just bad pixel art. Yeah, yeah. Or oh no, polygons. That's what. It, yeah, polygon mm-hmm. art, like you saw in like first generation uh, PlayStation One stuff. Right. So pretty much everything's gearing up. Of we're we're going to Arrakis. The family is going to Arrakis. The Baron and his people are going to use a traitor who is Doctor Yui to kill the duke mm-hmm. yep that yeah. is true <laughs> um paul is supposed to be 15 years old when the story begins although he seems a little old for his age yes and that's intentional and not bad writing possibly okay that's good um it, it makes sense that that at least makes sense i think i i was old for my age i just maybe maybe i missed my calling of uh mm-hmm space jesus growing up in south right yeah (laughs) unfortunately space jesus's are in this universe born and not made so you you are born a quizot's hot rock or you're not Mm -hmm. well i I know that was one of the big uh criticisms of the new star wars trilogy although there were plenty of things to criticize but Mm -hmm. one of them being that the protagonist ray seemed to be the first one in the story to come out like your parents were nobody. This this isn't some kind of hereditary, you know, mm-hmm. monarchial bullshit. Like you were somebody who arose from the common people. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, and honestly, and then they that, like retconned that though, right? And then they retconned and like, by the way, you're the emperor's granddaughter, and kind of like, just yanked that whole thing away. Like, man, like you could go either way with that. I don't think it's you know important to do one or the other. You could make a good story out of either one, but you you do need to pick a lane. Like, mm-hmm. well, see, one of the best. Uh, are, are you a fan of Lindsay Ellis at all, the YouTuber? Uh, yeah, I've seen I've seen her videos. Her she makes a great point in uh, one of her Lord of the Rings one on how it kind of turns that entire thing where the reason the hobbits are so special are because they're not special. Right. Like the real argument they make is like Gandalf can't take the ring because he's too powerful. He'll become a monster. Mm -hmm. You are a dumb hobbit. Like your, your power is how lowly you are. If this thing turns you, you're going to be a golem. Nobody gives a shit. You're not going to take out the world. Right. Right. Just a different aspect. Yeah. Herbert definitely does the, you know, you're, you're born the chosen one thing but Mm -hmm. it is not a good thing. So perhaps Uh, you want to say so much more than you can. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, no, I I do, but I won't ruin the book. Okay. Okay. Um, All right. We learned from the intro. Oh, we have all these little notes that start off every chapter. So I am just guessing but that they sound like Bible verses that are being written about what we're seeing happening on the page. You just gave me a big thumbs up. Big thumbs up. All right. Gold star for Jesse. Still got it. Yeah, yes. that's that's a really cool way of going about it. Honestly. Yeah, I, I definitely encourage you to. And I forget if there's parts in the book where they refer to the appendices or not. But I highly encourage you to read the the appendices at the end mm-hmm. of the book. Um, because one, one of them is the ecology of Dune. And one of them is the religion of Dune. Um, they also have, I guess, a, a, you know, dictionary at the end too. if you ever get confused by all the words cool. that he's made up, they oh, have that as well. You and I have but, the same exact pressing, actually. That's the same. Oh, yeah, yeah. Everything I- yeah. Does it also say soon to be a major motion picture? Yeah, yes, <laughs> they're vague about it. Yeah, yeah, that could have been could have been a forty year old pressing. No, I love this cover actually. Like, I I think it's a it's a very cool design. Yeah, it it, it really pops out. It has a little bit of that seventies uh, aesthetic. 
you, mm-hmm. you know what? We're just going to gloss over it earlier. You mentioned storyboards made by Mobius. Now, I yes. don't exactly, I'm going to venture a guess, see if I remember that right. Is Mobius the one who did like all the gnarly album covers of the 70s? Uh, he may have. I actually don't know about album covers. He's a very famous uh, comic guy. He does comics. Um, and he actually... Uh, the one of his one of the more famous things or I guess one of the more talked about things these days is he he collaborated with the same director Jodorowsky um to make a book called The Incall I-N-C-A-L and it's like a it's like a space opera psychedelic kind of thing as well so sort of I guess what they were they took maybe some of the ideas from the Dune thing I, I'm not sure that this is true, but this is my, my personal speculation. And they turned it into a graphic novel um, okay. together. So he, he's, a, he's a sort of famous, like, I think he's like French, I'm pretty sure. Uh, co- co- comics guy, artist. Uh, okay. Yeah. So I, I see my confusion now. I was confusing Mobius for uh, an English art design group called Hypnosis. And oh okay yeah, yeah i was like so they, it's yeah. possible he made album covers i'm not sure yeah no, i just sense. confused yeah that was the group they made like black sabbath and pink floyd and some of like the biggest album covers ever gotcha yeah no Mo- mobius is mostly known for comics but extremely good artist um and you might rec if you google some of his stuff you might recognize yeah the i saw style. a few things in there yeah all right cool uh so we learned from the introductory biographical note as well from dr yui's own thoughts that is something in the construction of uh, the novel itself. He jumps perspectives quite a bit. It's not all from the perspective of Paul or even just his family. We see we see people where they are and in their own thoughts, which a uh, third person omniscient, if I remember my meager schooling correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we learn from Dr. Yui's own thoughts that he is going to be the traitor to the Atreides family, despite being a longtime family friend. Paul is joined by his father, Duke Leto, in uh leto leto i'm just going with jared leto pronunciation here a god in his own right (laughs) as we're finding out yes oscar isaac in the new new movie very good casting in my opinion Ooh, i didn't know he was in this okay yes (laughs) i actually i first saw him in star wars but then after the fact i saw him in inside lewin davis yes and uh (laughs) such a good good that that Mr. Kennedy song is one of my favorite songs. Ever. It is so good. Actually, it's so funny. Um, the first time I saw that, I was I was in college when I saw that movie, and um, Adam, I'd, I'd never seen Adam Driver in anything before. Mm. Um, and uh, he looks exactly like my one this one person I I did Japanese classes with in college, who I think had like like left campus for a while or was taking a break or something. And I saw it inside Lewin Davis and I was like, there's no way that that guy went to Hollywood and is now in a Coen Brothers movie, but it looks exactly like Ow. him. And I was, <laughs> I was so like preemptively jealous. I was like, is he, if he made it big and isn't a Coen Brothers movie and I'm still stuck at William and Mary, I'm going to be oh, so mad. No. <laughs> but That's it was hilarious. not. Also, with with Inside Lewin Davis and Star Wars and Silence, we've accidentally hit a trifecta of Adam Driver movies. Oh, yeah, that's true. That is true. (laughs) Um, (laughs) He's such a strange looking man. He is. And he's going to be in the new John DeLillo movie adaptation as well. Speaking of uh, Wallace and his, uh, you know, ilk. (laughs) So excited Uh, to see how that movie goes. Okay, Leto admits that they are walking into a trap set by Baron Harkonnen, but believes that the Atreides can survive if they keep their eyes open. Leto reveals to Paul that the Harkonnen have been stockpiling melange, the spice drug, and plan to destroy the production of it on Arrakis while also obliterating the Atreides. Destruction of the spice supply would drive the prices of melange so high that the Harkonnens would gain control, while the Atreides shoulder the blame for the high prices. Leto tries to allay Paul's fears. Leto believes that the Atreides can beat the Sneaky Baron at his own game. So at the time we are recording this, there is a whole Facebook trend of uh, very narrow-minded voters. Pretty much, I, I see a post every day of like, gas is 3.30. Don't you wish Trump was back yet? Like... <laughs> So we're kind of seeing that of just like, you see yeah. that with like different people sabotaging and like price fixing 
and right. always leaving somebody else to take, you know, hold the bag. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's U.S. economic policy in a nutshell. Right. <laughs> that's very funny. Yeah. God, just so much politics. <laughs> I am curious. I, w- I would like to know, I would like to make a list of like the best drugs in fiction. Like mm. melange and the spice has to be there. Uh, yeah. The, the, just cause I thought about it, the drug from the three stigmata of Palmer Eldridge is pretty cool mm-hmm. where it's, it's sort of like an, a drug slash entertainment hybrid. So you, you get sucked Ooh. into this world by taking this drug. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, yeah, that, that kind a, of thing. You got Maloco Drinkum in a uh, clockwork <laughs> orange. Yeah, true. Um, shit what was the big one the big one i just had my it'll come back to me um the nightmare drug from infinite jest probably not <laughs> oh, jesus christ what was the name of that drug the, i think it was like the dmz right dmz like that yeah yeah okay um soon the atreides arrive on planet arrakis lady jessica meets her new servant shout out mapes who is a freeman a native of arrakis We've seen these people described, uh, well, this woman in particular is described as like kind of wrinkled, a little brownish, but they have completely blue eyes. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how you picture this. I don't know what this is in the canon. Is it blue with an iris and a pupil or is it just like golf ball blue? It's like blue, blue, blue like blue. all of it. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. I need to know. I need to know how to picture this accurately. Mm-hmm. Um, this native shout out has been sent to test Jessica. And since she is a Benegarisit, a member of a special ancient school for women, Jessica passes the test. Jessica correctly identifies the strange knife that Mape shows her, calling it a maker, uh, mm-hmm. which has been ground from a sandworm's tooth. Maper refers to Jessica as the one and gives her the knife. And then we even get a weird thing of like, she's going to sheath it. And then she says like, you can't put the knife away unbloodied. Like if you take mm-hmm. it out, you need to get, so she like slices the poor Freeman lady. Oh, but then the interesting, it, it like clots and disappears almost immediately because they have so, they have to survive on so little water. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting evolution. Oh yeah. No, all the water stuff is, is really cool slash, I don't know. When I was like first reading the book, I was like, is this a grim version of the future when we run out of water? <laughs> it also makes me think a lot. And actually, I'm not sure what the um, timeline is. Let me look it up. But I, whenever I think of water in science fiction, I have to think of Stranger in a Strange Land. I haven't read that, actually. So It is so good. And okay, Dune actually comes after that, but it's it's so recent. Uh, Stranger in a Strange Land was 1961. Dune, Dune uh, was 1965. So hmm. they're so close. They probably didn't really interact. But the whole thing with Stranger in a Strange Land is um, astronauts go to Mars. Most of them die off. They find out like 20 years later that two of the astronauts had a kid on Mars. And mm-hmm. the, the kid was raised. So he's a human raised as a Martian on Mars. And when he comes back, water is always a huge thing because there's so little water on Mars mm-hmm. to the extent that he gets invited to go for a dip in a swimming pool, which would be like a mountain of cocaine to us, like something that is like so rare. And you're like, oh, yeah, take a dip and like hedonistically indulgent. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a, it, it's a very good book. But uh, the author was way into non-monogamy and that takes a huge chunk of the book up. Interesting. In an an otherwise straightforward messianic kind of thing. Yeah, reading Dune, I wouldn't know about uh, an author's sexual hangups taking up a huge amount of the book or anything. So, damn, I don't know enough yet. I want to. (laughs) You will. Don't worry. (laughs) What's his angle? What what, what is he? Oh, there's there's lots of layers to it. Um, uh, so. A lot of it, and, and a lot of this is sort of later on and in future books, but I feel like the, the Oedipal stuff has to do with it, and that's in this book. There's a lot of, like, weird femdom stuff that comes in, mm-hmm. like, uh, later on, so you will, you'll see. Um, okay. It's, it, 
and I and I say this with all the love in my heart because I think it's 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 almost like very unique and compelling like it is weird enough that you don't see it in a lot of books so I find it compelling and and fun to read I'm looking I, I feel like science fiction was such a great conduit for like sexual politics and ideas particularly Mm -hmm. in like the sixties and seventies where I guess, I guess that's kind of where it had to be, you know, Trojan horsed into the popular culture, you know, as Mm -hmm. like a safe, you know, well, there's space aliens. Of course I had to make it look different. Right. Um, Yeah. uh, What I love about Dune is like, it is, and it, and it is hard to approach it from 2021 because I bet at the time it was really progressive. Um, mm. And, and it, you know, because he has all these like interesting 3D women characters and these like powerful women organizations and stuff like that. And, you know, during some part of Dune, as I recall, he, he talks about how women are like inherently better at certain psychic things. And mm. it's just fascinating. But um but then also there's the other side where Frank Herbert tries to get into like the female psyche. And then he's like, you know, Jessica's, this is later on, but it's like Jessica's mad at her daughter for being young and beautiful. And this is, this <laughs> consumes a lot of her thoughts for some reason. And so. It, it, and my daughter's just so hot. It's eating me up inside. There's a, there's a lot of weird thoughts that people have about their family members in this series. I will just say, um, that's another aspect that I I think is just very strange I don't know what Frank Herbert was on exactly but um. I'm I'm looking forward to that here's all right here's something you can maybe fill me in um the Benegarisit how much are they known to like the populace at large because it seems like Duke Leto is aware of them because he says it kind of like a curse word but he's also a duke he might know these things is this like a shadow cult secret kind of thing kind of so um they are known of uh people don't know exactly what they do or uh are are, what what their what their exact like ha 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 plans are (laughs) but they you know think they're like witches they they are not suspicious of them probably correctly honestly um (laughs) and and so people are not like uh totally on board with them uh, perhaps again, uh, it, it makes sense not to uh, totally trust them. But okay, and it does seem. I mean, we we see the servant girl is is one of them. The high priest is obviously mm-hmm. um, Jessica. Jessica exists in a weird place in here. It's not in the summary, but now it's time to talk about it. Where she is the concubine to the to the duke, but not mm-hmm. actually the wife. And I believe the politics behind that is having a strong, powerful single man, you can always, you know, he can't marry her because pretty much there's no alliance to be gained. And mm-hmm. it, it helps to have him available because that's always a dangling carrot that can be used to like, you know, make peace with or join houses at some point. So she's mm-hmm. in this weird, like, she is the mother of his heir. In, at least in that monarchical sense, there doesn't seem to be like the legitimization or bastard like if he is the son then he is the heir it doesn't matter how legitimate it is mm-hmm. yeah so marriage among these families is pretty much just a political thing mm-hmm. um so you see this uh, repeated with multiple characters throughout the series where they have these sort of loveless and in a few key cases like totally sexless marriages mm-hmm. um that are just political and then your actual spouse is like a concubine or something like that. Hmm. So, okay, interesting. It, yeah, it is interesting. Um, another sort of uh, fascinating thing that they get into later in the series is is Paul's situation with that once he grows up, um, and Frank Frank Herbert's like sort of the opposite of uh, the Stranger in the Strange Land thing. This the sort of extremely dogged monogamy. Um, mm. that Paul pursues uh, to uh, extreme political detriment. Like he, <laughs> it's just very funny. So I, I, I don't know why those words work, go very well together. Dogged monogamy. <laughs> yeah, the sort of uh, sound repeating. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. So last little thing from that scene, Mapes refers to Jessica as the one. Mm. All right, getting close mm-hmm. to wrapping up our section here. Jessica then goes to find Paul, but instead finds Doctor Yui. 
Paul is sleeping in the next room. Paul's sleeping in a lot of this first chunk. That's true. Yeah. I, I envy him. I am so tired. Um, <laughs> Jessica and Yui discuss Arakeen politics, particularly the fact that some natives resent their rulers for the extravagant use of the water on the planet that is practically mm-hmm. no water. Ah, those dumb pores, what do they know? Uh, very, <laughs> this is very similar to Mad Max Fury Road, where mm-hmm. that's the entire setup is uh, the main baddie controls the water supply for a small area in the desert. Mm-hmm. Um, other natives believe that Atreides bring hope to Arrakis in contrast to the previous Harkonnen rule. Mm-hmm. Yui, who is desperately trying to conceal his traitorous plans from Jessica, who has Ben Garrison mind abilities, reveals one small truth. His wife, also a Ben Garrison, was taken and presumably killed by the Harkonnens. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting scene right there because Dr. Yui knows he's dealing with Jessica. He's a, she's a Ben Garrison. She she can intuit certain things like he's doing his best no matter what he says to not lie mm-hmm. while also not revealing also i'm gonna kill your your guy and maybe your kid mm-hmm. right yeah and it makes sense if he was married to you know a benny jesseret like in the in the past he probably knows how to keep most of those walls up yeah, mm, uh, you got to as, as a new husband, you have to learn mm-hmm. how to lie to your wife. My, right. <laughs> my, yeah. And it's, it's harder when she's a psychic space nun. Yes. Um, yes. Now, my wife's biggest complaint is I'm not good enough at lying to her. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. In Paul's bedroom, a small robotic probe appears from behind the hit board and tries to kill him but Paul manages to escape. Yeah, Paul is lucky in that like he can't really sleep. He's wandering around just in time to see this thing like come out of his headboard ready to kill mm-hmm. him. And apparently this is so common a tool that he knows exactly what what do they call it? It's called like a hunter probe? hunter seeker, I think. Hunter seeker. Yes, yeah, thank you. So yeah, he sees this thing and he immediately freezes in place knowing that like this thing tracks movement. That's how it knows what things are. Mm-hmm. Um while he's actually waiting, the uh, shout out Mapes, the Arke- what, what, what's the name? The Freeman, the Freeman woman mm-hmm. uh, comes to the door. And as the hunter seeker is going after the woman, again, you know, finding motion, uh, Paul reaches out and grabs it. So, and that'll lead to his whole thing with the uh, shout out Mapes, where she now kind of owes him. She pretty much says, like, oh, you saved my life. Like, well, only in the process of saving my own life. Like, but mm-hmm. yeah, I still kind of owe you. So. Right. And isn't that called like a water debt or something? Yeah, yeah. Um, I believe that that is the term. And uh, there's like a lot about sort of bodily fluids um, mm-hmm. all sort of being referred to as water because, you know, mm. they're mostly water. They're right. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so the whole thing with the hunter seeker and Paul knows this right away is, uh, they need to be remotely controlled and they only have so much of like a connection radius. So knowing that like, if this thing is here, somebody is on the ship piloting it right now, trying to kill him. Mm-hmm. The Atreides troops find a man beneath the palace where he had been controlling the probe. They theorize that he, cause they'd already searched the entire, you know, palace. Mm-hmm. All right. Here's one thing where I get a little confused yet. This, this actually lost me. Are they on a spaceship on the way to Arrakis already? Or did they show up in Arrakis or are they still back in wherever they were before? Um, let me, sorry, again, I only. Yeah, I, I was not entirely, because I know they were preparing enough that like, we actually got really un-sci-fi elements as like, you know, a clothes rack and like bookshelves and shit, which I actually thought was cool that I actually went to, decent way towards making it feel like an actual mm-hmm. you know livable sci-fi universe as opposed I to i thought like, this was like the the like embassy or something like that okay. like but i i don't remember and i just skimmed this uh so Perfect. i don't remember if this is like the <laughs> ship that they take there or if they've actually arrived in the place but i'm pretty sure it is the actual like uh sort of not embassy. I don't know the, the the place where the the ruling families live and do their okay. colo- their colonialism okay. from. It, basically, it, it would be pretty weird to have a palace on a spaceship. So yeah, no. Okay. Um, meanwhile, Jessica discovers the palace greenhouse where thousands of plants are giving hundreds of wa- gallons of water per day. 
she also discovers a note from another Bene Gesserit. Did mm-hmm. I say it right? All right. Yeah. Lady Fenring, who belatedly warns Jessica about the assassination attempt on Paul. Fenring warns that a traitor is in their midst. Paul runs into the greenhouse and Jessica tells him of the message as he disposes of the hunter seeker in a fountain, which like short circuits it right away. Mm. And uh, that's our episode for today. First 98 pages. That was another reason I had to have you on first. I was not going to task anybody else with reading almost a hundred pages. (laughs) And then summarizing it. For sure. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. It's it's always uh, very fun to me to talk about all the, the sort of, what what makes this book up so mm-hmm. but yeah hey, i i love having you on the show because like i said it, in in my in my social circle i am like one of the two or three most well read and the truth is i haven't read a lot of shit i i skipped out on years but mm-hmm. you you really have your toe in this stuff and i like <laughs> i always like talking to people who know better than me so oh thank you thank you so much yeah yes. absolutely anytime uh, awesome love dune um the now i'm going to do the reverse of what i did before and recommend that before you um or for the episode that you watch david lynch's dune uh you should read the david foster wallace essay about david lynch if you haven't already um because do i I have to um yeah okay okay (laughs) it's it's short and it's funny so I think okay. you'll like it. And it, and it gives some back, it, it gives a pretty succinct backstory about what happened with Dune exactly and mm-hmm. that part of his career. So, okay. Yeah. All right, cool. Yeah, I will definitely uh, look into that for that. That should be dropping in like a month and a half, I think. We're going to try to do Dune in uh, nine parts, which seems like, you know, yeah, three parts for each. Damn. <laughs> yeah. I think you can do it. All right. Well, it's a, it, um, you remember Infinite Jest, we did like 30 pages at a time, but that was like so dense and it was juggling so many storylines. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, All Dune right. is a little bit more straightforward despite being long as hell. So Yes. <laughs> All right. So, uh, yeah, thanks for being on. Great as always. Again, let us know where we can find you on the interwebs. Yes, absolutely. Uh, R.E. Parish Comics. I'm pretty much everywhere. P-A-R-R. ISH. ISH. Yes. Yeah. Go, go check out Brahmadeus. Brahmadeus is awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Going to end it like I end every episode. Going to stop recording, but you and I can still talk and these peons can wait and they're not privy to this recording. See you guys. <laughs> Bye.